Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Last year, Katie Hill left the house after her abusive ex-husband released personal photos of her without consent. In a swarm of misogyny and puritanical faux outrage of these photos, the 30-year-old congresswoman was railroaded out of office. But Katie's not done. Since leaving office, she's started a PAC, a podcast, and is the author of the newly released book, she will rise. I love her so much. Enjoy. Tonight we're going to take a look at California Congressional District 25, where 31-year-old first-time candidate Katie Hill is running against Republican incumbent Congressman Steve Knight. Republican incumbent Steve Knight has conceded to his Democratic rival Katie Hill. We all know that you don't need to have an explicit quid pro quo for it to be a threat or intimidation. Last night I announced the most difficult decision of my life, that I would be resigning from Congress. Our community will no longer be subjected to the pain inflicted by my abusive husband and the brutality of hateful political operatives. Leaving because of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality, and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse, this time with the entire country watching. I'm Katie Hill, and I'm dedicating the next chapter of my life to overthrowing old white men and replacing them with young women. Sorry, not sorry. Katie, when this episode airs, it will have been about nine months since you left Congress. Can you just give us an update on what you've been up to and how you've been doing? It's hard to believe that it's been nine months already and also that it's only been nine months. I feel like my world has just completely changed and in a way that's reflected in the world as a whole. But right after, it was just a real tragedy. But Shortly after I resigned, just over two months after I resigned, my brother, who was 20 years old, passed away by an accidental drug overdose. And my um, my mom was still in hospital having just had brain surgery when that happened. And so it's really been just kind of a tragic time for our family. But at the same time, I was able to dive into writing the book and starting my pack her time and trying to roll forward and figure out the next steps for my life, I guess. I just want to talk about how you were able to cope with that much devastation in such a small amount of time. Like for me, this year has been so much about just accepting the imperfection of life 
and how hard it can be. And even if it's not a personal experience, I think that collectively what we're dealing with right now is just a collective trauma. So tell me how you were able to cope or did you just stay in bed, which is totally fine too. I mean, I've had those years too. There was definitely some of that. There's no doubt that I just stayed in bed. And I think that most people who have been through trauma and probably even just existing this year, that's been the case for a lot of people is just depression will get the better of you sometimes. And it will feel like an impossible task to get out of bed or off the couch or even do the most basic chores or do the dishes or anything. And on days when I'm feeling better, sometimes it's amazing to me how hard the most basic things can feel. My family has been just so much of a critical support. My mom, my sister, my grandmother and I have actually, like the chain of women have gotten, I would say, much closer Mm. in the last six months to a year than probably ever. I always considered us close, you know, especially my mom, me and my sister, like we talk all the time, especially my brother's death brought us together. And I live with my mom when I'm in California now and leaning on family has been, I think, the number one thing. But also trying to dive into a project that I care about. And I think it was, in a way, a perfect time because I wrote the book in about a month, just totally diving in 100%. Like my life was the book. It was all in. But I think if I hadn't had that, because it was like I came back to Washington, D.C. on March 15th and April 6th was my first draft due. And so that entire time was the very beginning of quarantine. And I like I wouldn't have been able to leave my apartment anyway because of the book. And so it right. kind of coincided well. And I really just feel like it's one day at a time. You know, today I'm excited because I'm going to go see a friend. She's renting a beach house and I'm going to go see her. But even today it was hard to just get ready or get up. And it's just like, why? I'm excited about something today. I want to talk about your book, but it's amazing to me that in my darkest moments, how almost impossible it feels to do the things that I know are going to make me feel better. I don't know what it is about human nature that that's part of it. But in my worst, I have had a few mental hardships. I have anxiety disorder and I've had some really big crisis situations where it's gotten pretty gnarly. And in the thick of it, I know, right, in my head, I'm like, okay, I know if I got up right now and if I walked barefoot outside in the grass, that would make me feel better. I know if I did 20 minutes of yoga, if I just did 20 minutes of yoga right now, that would make me feel better. And that's processing in my head, but I cannot bring myself to do it. Same. I know that if I get up and I like make some food or if I get up and I force myself to work out for just even 10 minutes, yeah, you know, you'll feel better. And then that just keeps you going. But it's almost like an inertia in an exaggerated way where generating enough force to move yourself is next to impossible. And I think for people who haven't experienced these kinds of challenges, whether it's an anxiety disorder or just depression or, you know, anything like that, it can be very difficult to explain because they're like, what do you mean you can't get up and go outside for a walk? Why don't you just get out of bed? There's a lot of that. Like, why don't you just That's now. Imagine 35, 40 years ago when there wasn't this kind of willingness to talk about it. Well, I found out uh, through the course of writing my book, I ended up telling a lot of my grandmother's story in the book. And through the course of it, I found out that my great-grandmother, who was her mother, people in the family had always just said, oh, she was crazy or whatever. Right. But I found out that from the time that she was really young, she was getting shocked. She was in an institution wow. for like one threw over the cuckoo's nest kind of thing. And so who even knows what was quote unquote wrong with her 
at the beginning, like maybe she was just depressed, probably because it was a really yeah. depressing life for women wow. at that time. Or who even knows what? Maybe she stood up against her husband and it just resulted in her getting electroshock. I want to say the term is electroshock therapy, but obviously electroshock abuse is more like what it was then. Yeah, it's much different now. And there are lots of people that do it that have positive experiences. But I don't know what it is about families, how they don't tell the entire story. (laughs) Like my grandmother is agoraphobic. She hasn't left the house in 35 years, literally. But that part of the story where it was a clinical diagnosis was left out until just recently. It was more like, yeah, she doesn't like to go outside. She's a homebody. It was more like that. I'm actually taking a psychology class because I started to see signs in my daughter of potential anxiety, which I'm hoping is just me being neurotic. But I was like, okay, how can I heal my child? So I started a somatic experiencing class. And the thing that I've really learned is that we have a genetic disposition to certain mental illnesses. And then it is trauma that can make that into something that is chronic and debilitating. And so I just find it so fascinating. And also the thing that I'm learning is that we just hold it all in our bodies. Even if we think that we're overcoming whatever by sitting in a therapy session with a therapist, that could be true, but your body is actually holding on to experiences and trauma. I actually sometimes, especially before I was really good about going to therapy, I figured out that it was my body that would tell me how stressed I was because I just wouldn't recognize it. But then I would start to have just weird physical symptoms that didn't even make sense. And then I would be like, okay, something else is off here, you know? We almost have to just be mindful that we have to heal from the bottom up. The practice of mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment. While your mind may try to go to the past or the future, you try to discipline your mind and to increase your awareness of the present moment, what's going on around you, but also what's going on inside of you so you can better understand your own habits, your own emotional states, And the benefits are remarkable and being proven uh, more and more each day by the research. They reduce stress, increase focus, um, keep you healthier because it boosts your immune system, make better decisions. Somewhere in your body, you're probably storing the trauma of losing your brother. Whether you feel that now or 20 years from now, like at some point, it's going to take a toll. And it's why our Native Americans used to dance around a fire when they had a hard day or why people in villages still in Africa will dance around a fire. And it's to get out whatever it is in their bodies. And we've so lost touch of that. Plus, the body has just become about looking good in a bikini. So, (laughs) well, I am so happy to talk about your book, which is called She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality. So exciting. I can't wait to read it. Tell me, what does true equality mean to you? That's a great question. So for me, it basically comes down to, do we have truly equal access to power and money and everything that comes with that? And if we do, that means that the systemic barriers that are in place are, in fact, going to, in and of themselves, be broken down because the people who are controlling it are no longer the ones who are trying to, like, hoard that power, right? 
So I think that they're the obvious things. We need to have power over our own bodies. We need to have equal pay. When I say power over our own bodies, I mean access to abortion. We need to have those things that we talk about all the time. But there is this underlying aspect that is kind of how entrenched sexism and misogyny goes that we have to be rooting out as well. And I know with everything that's happened during this presidency, it can be easy for a single issue to get kind of lost, right? For example, women's issues often get lumped in as a single category. But the point of the book, I guess, is to say that we have an agenda for feminism. We have an agenda for what it's going to take to get to true equality. And this is what we have to stay focused on day in and day out. And, you know, I know equality is a much bigger issue than women alone. It's far more staged, right? To get to equality for women of color is going to be different and it's going to be a lot harder than equality for white women. But it's still something that when you have levels of power where some people are kept out of it intentionally yeah. or even unintentionally, then our world isn't going to be the place that it needs to be. And I think that women have to be the ones who are leading us out of this. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Speaking of the different subsects of equality, I mean, you were the first LGBTQ member of Congress elected from California, and you were also under 30 when you decided to run, and then just over 30 when you took office. Do you think that any of those elements changed the way you were treated? Well, I definitely think that a misunderstanding or a bias against the fact that I was bi played into it. Your story exploded. Um, and I guess political scandals always explode to some some degree. But how much of it is tied to the fact in your mind that you're bisexual? I think a lot of it is. And it's also partly because I'm a woman. We haven't seen as many, right, of the sex scandals with women. But the bisexuality is, is a huge part of it, right? This is a, this is, there's a, a fantasy element of it. There's biphobia that is rampant still. Um, and certainly misunderstanding of what bisexual, bisexuality is. And it's sensationalizing, right? It's, the headlines are much, much better than just, oh, Congresswoman has, you know, affair with a former campaign staffer. It was sensationalized, right? And I would say that that made for great fodder for the cyber exploitation that was used against me. And I think the fact that I'm young, right? Like I was the third youngest member, I think. I think it was AOC, Abin, Finkenauer, and then me, ever, that was ever elected. Woman. Right. Not just now, but in history. And I think that when you embody some of those factors that are scary to the establishment, scary to the status quo, the people who are currently in charge, then those are your vulnerabilities. Those are the things that make them even more likely to want to attack you and offended by how much you speak out and how much you're claiming your seat at the table. But did you know that going in? 
it's always a theoretical, right? Or it's something that you've experienced in a certain sense. What I wasn't ready for was my own family or personal situation getting so messy, right? I talk about that in my book a lot is what an abusive relationship can look like that you would never know, right? I didn't ever look like, I mean, I was gaining power. I was, I put out this incredible front, like you just wouldn't know that that was the situation in our relationship. But I think that that's the harsh reality that I was really not prepared for the consequences of. I didn't think that he would go as far as he did. And denial, I guess, is what it boils down to. I just didn't think it was possible. I want to back up for just a second. And I want you, from your voice and your words, to give my listeners your stories so that it's not filtered through any media lens. Tell everybody exactly what happened. So June of 2019, I decided I had to leave my husband. So I left. He actually was technically the one who filed for the divorce, but that was my intention. But in the course of all of that, in the course of me trying to leave him, he said, I will ruin you. And that was a threat that scared me, but I didn't know what it meant. In 2007, I had a partner that I shared naked pictures with when I was pretty young. In 2011, my email was hacked into or entered by a person that I don't know who is. And they took these pictures and they uploaded all of this online with an encouragement to harass me. These pictures were sent to people on my Facebook friends list, sent to my family. I very quickly understood, you know, you can't keep it a secret because they don't allow you to keep it a secret because the point is to destroy your life. Turns out that he had not only released pictures of me, but he had taken pictures that I didn't even know about, saved them, and had even been posting them online on like swingers sites and on Reddit, things like that, that I had no idea was happening. So after I left him, some time passes and five months later, he ended up, I don't know exactly how it happened, but there was zero other way that those pictures could have gotten out into the universe or even existed except for through my ex-husband those were released in the right-wing media. And ultimately, it led to a revelation that I'd had a relationship with someone who worked on my campaign. And I admitted to that. And that's a mistake that I made. And it's always more complicated than it appears, but it's not something that I should have done. But my husband also accused me of having a relationship with one of my congressional staffers, which I didn't, which my staffer also denied, and which would be against the rules. But he made that accusation and that caused the ethics committee to open an investigation that would have been into my entire office and would have caused a great deal of trauma to my staff. And ultimately, I decided with that and how we were moving into impeachment and how I was currently a leader in the freshman class. I was the freshman representative to leadership. I was the vice chair on oversight. I decided that I would better serve the district and my staff and the caucus and everyone else if I stepped Decide. There's a problem with the term revenge porn because it implies, A, that there's something to be taking revenge for, right? That the woman maybe did something wrong in the first place. Um, and pornography also could imply that it was, it was consensual, and it's not. What I did not predict was that the district was going to immediately flip back to Republican, which is what happened in the special election, and now we have to win it back in November. To me, it seems very much like you were totally railroaded out of office because you actually had the audacity to be a woman with a sex and love life that might not have fit into what some might think of as traditional bounds. But I mean, 
fuck, we see male members of Congress have repeated affairs. We have a president who is a sexual predator who paid off a porn star and on and on and on and like that. So I still can't figure out why your consensual relationship was treated so differently. Do you think if it wasn't the impeachment coming up and you were just like, yeah, fine, I'm not going to step down because this happens all the time. Do you think that you would still be in office? I think so, honestly. I don't know whether that would have been the right thing or the wrong thing, but I know one thing that I did want was to take it off the table, whether we were being hypocrites or not, whether I was being a hypocrite or not, because I knew that I wasn't going to change my position or be able to back down on how I'm a champion for women's issues and how I do feel about women and the ways that we've been treated historically, especially as victims, whether it's in the workplace or in just life in general, sexual abuse victims. And I figured, and you know, everything was a blur, of course, then, but I didn't want every single action that I took be like, well, you did this, you did this, and you abused your power. Granted, that's what they do now. But I can always say, well, I did the thing that I think other people should be held to the expectations of, but I don't know that that was the right call. I know that it's devastating that the district flipped back. I know that it's not the way, you know, people say, oh, well, that's the way that the district voted. Well, the turnout was abysmal, and it was the first all-male election that had ever been done in California. And there's a whole analysis on why that's not representative of the district. But my sincere hope is that it goes back blue. I think it's such a testament to what a special candidate you were that you took that district that was historically always red and made it blue. And I know at this point you're probably upset that it switched back to red, but that's where it always was. So instead of feeling shitty about that, just try to realize how special you are. That is your power. And I also think that you have this really unique insight into the ways women are sexualized differently than men and punished for it. I mean, not only from your own experience, but from your time investigating Trump's affair with Stormy Daniels and the payments that happened to her. On February 13th, 2018, Mr. Cohen, you sent a statement to the reporters that said, quote, I used my own personal funds to facilitate a payment of $130,000 to Ms. Stephanie Clifford, and neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was party to the transaction with Ms. Clifford, and neither reimbursed me for the payment, either directly or indirectly. Was the statement false? The statement is not false. I purposefully left out Mr. Trump individually from that statement. The two of you were vilified in a very different way than men are treated. So what do you think that says about us as a culture and specifically about how our culture treats women in or in proximity to power? I think it's how it treats women in proximity to power, but it's also how it treats women in proximity to sex or in relation to sex. And you're right that if sex looks different than missionary style and you're married or at least hetero, then like it's weird to a lot of people. And bisexuality in particular is something that even a lot of well-meaning, accepting folks don't understand. And so I think that that's part of it, right? It just like inherently either is sensationalized or weird to people. It makes you seem like something different or there's a fantasy element as well. So I think that's one piece of it. But I also think that when you are a woman in power, 
you have different ways of asserting your power, right? Or how you kind of have to accommodate the fact that you are a woman. And I'm not one who has shied away from my sexuality. I've worn outfits that are feminine. I wear high heels. I've embraced that for who I am. And I know a lot of other people have too. But that's also, I think, something that scares a lot of men in power. It's disarming. And it's saying that I'm not only here at this table, but I'm going to do it my own way. And it's definitely a different way than you're accustomed to, right? Well, because we always had to fit into these conforms of what women in power should look like or be like. And then you add any sort of, um, you know, you're a woman who's bi and then they're like, wait, what? This is too much for me. Do you know what I mean? There's this element of like, if it were one thing, maybe that would be okay. But she's young, you know, and ageism is a very real thing in politics. And the thing is, is that I don't know how this story wasn't about non-consensual porn and internet exploitation because there's a very specific violation here in your case. Mm -hmm. And I want to discuss that for a minute because you had to bear the consequences of his really horrible actions. And do you consider what happened to you internet exploitation or non-consensual porn? And 100%. If, okay, so how do we fight this? Well, I'm going to be filing a lawsuit against the media companies that did it. It's a long story as to why it takes as long as it does. And I can't really get into it for legal reasons, but that is coming. And I don't know if we're going to be successful or not, but I think that it's important for the sake of future cases like this, that you can't publish stuff like that. And you can't do it under the guise of public interest. If photos are released non-consensually, especially nude photos, there's nothing acceptable about that in terms of printing it in any kind of media. So that's one thing. But there are, and this is in the book too, there are real legislative priorities and solutions, ways that we can combat it. But there has to be a will and there has to be political right. drive to do so. And the only way that that happens is if there's pressure. State laws can vary widely. Some criminal remedies can include harassment, non-consensual pornography laws, and invasion of privacy. And these remedies can range from misdemeanors to felonies. So California was one of the first states to have laws around this. In 2013, they banned unconsensual pornography, which requires that an image of sexual explicit nature be sent without the person's consent and that it likely causes emotional distress. Someone convicted of this faces a misdemeanor charge and faces up to a $1,000 fine and six months in jail. In New York, there was no revenge porn law until 2019. Now, anyone sharing intimate or sexual videos or photos of a victim without their consent is facing potentially a Class A misdemeanor. person convicted of that crime could face up to a year in jail or three years probation and a $1,000 fine. Right now, it's not even a crime in most states. How is that possible? Because people just, A, lawmakers are old and don't understand the internet in a lot of places. Right. And B, there is this very strong mentality that, well, you shouldn't send those pictures if you don't want something like this to happen. That was pervasive in mine, too. And I was like, I didn't even take the pictures or send them. They were ones that my husband had taken and he had. But even if I had taken the pictures and sent them, that doesn't make it okay, right? That doesn't justify what he did. So I think what has to happen is that and resources need to be in place, that victims need to be able to come forward about this and truly be held accountable. And one of the ways to do that is that the platforms themselves that enable these kinds of pictures or videos or whatever it might be to be posted have to be able to be held accountable too. And Section 230 has come up recently because of Donald Trump saying abolish Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act because he wants to 
shut down Twitter for quote unquote censoring him because they're fact checking his tweets. But that's not what Section 230 is about. But Section 230 does need to be reformed, in my opinion, because it has let tech companies pretty much in no way police the actions of users on their platforms as it relates to cyber exploitation. And that's going to be an important element to addressing this overall. So I think as this book releases, the next step to that is the legislative agenda, I guess, kind of like the feminist agenda in the book is going to become sort of the focus for my pack, her time. And we're going to be in the the elections in November, helping a number of women candidates to try to get them through, especially into the House and into the Senate. And then after that, though, to me is where November 4th is going to be just as important as November 3rd for us to sustain a movement and for us to sustain the change that has to happen. I'm praying to every God or power that might exist that Biden wins. But even if he does, then our work has to continue yeah. in the same way. I think that's one of the mistakes that we as Democrats have historically made is that we just get the White House and then we're like, okay, And that's certainly not going to be the case now, because honestly, I don't know why anyone would want to be a president right now. Oh, God, I know. So much to fix. I've been watching the last six months even just being like, wow, I don't envy my colleagues right now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I will never forget your speech on the floor. This is the last speech that I will give from this floor as a member of Congress. I wasn't ready for my time here to come to an end so soon. It's a reality I'm still grappling with, and I will be for a long time to come. I expected, or I at least hoped, to be here for as long as the voters of California's 25th District deemed me worthy of the honor of representing them. I thought I could make a difference here in making our community, our great country, and the world a better place for generations to come. I, like so many of my colleagues, ran for office because I believed that our political system was broken, controlled by the powerful and the wealthy, ignoring and failing the regular people that it's supposed to serve. I came here to give a voice to the unheard in the halls of power. It was so powerful, and you were so amazing. And I kept thinking, and I think I said this to you last time I saw you, I would have been a mess. I don't think I could have given that speech, like, the way in which you did it. I think I would have been like, (laughs) and then I I would have been sobbing uncontrollably. And you were so together and so poised and graceful. You dealt with it with such grace. What were you feeling on the inside, though? It was the process leading up to that speech that was the hard part, right? And for me, at least, I knew that I had to put on my makeup and I put on my battle uniform, you know, in the red dress and the red lipstick. And I saw it as my war paint. And I was like, I'm going to give this in a meaningful way. And I have to show my strength because more than anything else, I felt like I couldn't show that I had been beaten or broken. And even though I was stepping down, it didn't mean that I was going away. And I think that's probably what pisses people off more than anything now is that I haven't just gone away. I see that in my mentions all the time. Like, why won't she just shut up and go away? And it's like, well, that's not what I'm going to do. I didn't get to this point to waste the platform that I do have and not use it for change. And I didn't inspire all of these young people and women just to let them all down and say that it was worth nothing. So I felt like I had to do that. I had to show that strength in the resignation speech. And to me, the resignation speech in a lot of ways has kind of been my roadmap moving out of it, right? And even kind of led me to what I was going to focus on in the book was sort of based on what I said I would do in my resignation speech, which is find a way of getting to true equality and fighting for 
for that every step of the way. Let me ask you this. Do you think that there's room for like honest discussion of mental health challenges from someone who holds or is seeking office? Or is the stigma just too great? There needs to be real conversation. In the days after your resignation, you seemed like you're very close to suicide. Mm -hmm. What stopped you from taking that final fatal step? It was my family, and it was um, the people who I knew it would, for lack of a better word, break. But I knew of all the girls and young women who looked up to me, who saw this happen to me, if the ultimate outcome was that this destroyed me, and, you know, I committed suicide, what does that tell them? And that, can't, that couldn't be my final story. I talked about it a little bit in terms of my depression when I was running, but it's seen as a weakness now. Or people are afraid that it's seen as a weakness, even though the reality is that most Americans have or will experience some kind of mental illness in their lifetime. But it's still taboo and it has to change for us to truly treat it like a medical condition, which is what it is, right? But mental health has so many factors involved, socioeconomic, and it's not something that you can just fix with a medication. Maybe that's part of it. But I guess anyway, my point is that the less we have leaders who are willing to speak about their own experiences, the less we're going to be able to address it on the scale that it needs to be. And I found that when I was talking about it on the campaign trail, people were just so grateful that I was talking about something that they've experienced and don't feel like they have the ability to talk about themselves. So I think it can happen. I think that depression is probably becoming the most normalized, probably because it's the most common. And the suicide epidemic is becoming so great. But maybe that's a start. And the other thing is people just more broadly need to understand that there's recovery, right? We talk about recovery in the mental health profession, but I don't think that the general public really understands what that means. And for me, that's hopefully along my path, I'm going to be talking about that too. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about your experience in Congress when you were there. Was it what you expected? What was it like? So people always ask me that question. And when I was there, I answered truthfully that I didn't have a set of expectations going in. So it was hard for it to be, was it what you expected or not? Because I was like, I didn't know what to expect. One of the surprises was that when I got there, I felt immediately like I was able to have a voice. I thought that I was going to be up against leadership, even within the Democratic caucus, that didn't want these newcomers to come in and shake things up. But I didn't find that to be the case. I found that a lot of the members of Congress who'd been there for a long time really did welcome the change and wanted to see it. But I also was struck every single time by just how difficult things were, how slow they were, how 
gummed up they can be, how in order to get anything to pass, it has to almost be fit into these like massive packages of legislation that turn them into these monsters. I mean, I learned so much about what I think is broken within the system. And to be able to change it, you really are going to have to have a pretty massive overhaul in a very short period of time. I don't think that you can continue to just spread it out over time, like, okay, we'll have casual turnover, because then those systems become irreplaceable, because the systems become ingrained in how they operate it, and then it goes to the next, to the next, to the next. But if you have a kind of massive turnover, I'm not saying the entire Congress at once by any means, but if we turn over, I think, 25% of Congress last time, if we turn over another 25% this time and another 25%, you know what I mean? Then within a very short time frame, you've got entirely new leadership and you have people who are willing to take a look at those real structural barriers. But if you have an adversarial relationship with the other side that is still focused on stupid things like trying to take away women's reproductive rights or take away our health care or give tax breaks to the wealthy, like you're not going to be able to make those kinds of reforms or changes because the other side is fighting you all the way. So for me, until that changes, until the Republican side changes or until they're voted out enough that we have the power required, it's going to be very difficult. So I think that the systemic change has to happen by pretty much replacing the whole Republican Party. But it also just feels like we're just at this point where divisiveness is basically a form of negotiation. And I don't know how we get past that. And by the way, I feel like it's within our own party, too. I mean, you participated in party leadership. Do you think that the party is as divided on the inside as it appears on the outside? No, I don't From think the it's outside? really divided on the inside as you don't. people like to make it up. No. Now, that's within Congress, right? And that's not to say that there isn't pretty fundamental disagreements on a lot of things. But the division is something within the party itself is something that the media love to play up. And I think that that's partly because Twitter is an exaggerated form of everything. And so you really see this clash between the Bernie and the Biden folks or the far left and the moderates. I get attacked constantly by the far left and I consider myself pretty damn progressive. So like, yeah. I think that if you're looking at that, then yes, it looks incredibly divided. And the way that the primaries played out just because of the nature of primaries, I think made that look worse than it really is. And there's leftovers from what happened with Hillary and Bernie last time. So there's certainly repairs that need to happen. But what I will say is that it became clear to me that on 99% of everything, most Democrats agree. That may not mean that we're focusing on the same things or that we're prioritizing Mm, or moving mm. as fast or whatever. That's the negotiation that should be happening as far as I'm concerned, right? And that's the fight that should be happening. That's healthy tension. We're there to represent the people that elect us. And if the people that elect you do so because you're championing massive overhaul of the healthcare system, doing something like going for Medicare for all, then you should be fighting with everything you've got to do that. And that means leadership is going to try and do it more slowly. And you have to fight that. And that means that you're going to be kind of opposed to them. So I don't think that that's bad. And what I think Nancy Pelosi deserves a lot of credit for is that she has always been really good at holding her caucus together. And we have seen that play out in a really important way in the last couple of years. Because what people forget is you can think about how, well, we flipped the House and not much has come of it. But we just have to imagine we didn't flip the House in 2018. Mm. How catastrophic it all would have been. Because it is and has been the only thing that has stopped the president and Mitch McConnell from doing the most unbelievable damage that we could even imagine. And so it was important. It just might not be making the forward progress that we want as much as it is a backstop preventing the country from falling apart even worse than it has since Trump got elected. The fact that the speaker has kept the caucus cohesive, 
I think, is a testament to the fact that Democrats truly are pretty united when it comes to most important issues and that there can be a debate about priorities and there can be a debate about approach or the details of things. But fundamentally, our values are aligned and they are diametrically opposed to the Republican quote unquote values. And that's what to me is the most important thing for us to start to really focus on. So any energy that is about party divisiveness needs to be shifted to how the fuck do we get rid of all these Republicans that right. shouldn't be there. What do you think the election's going to look like in November? You mean the results or? Just all of it. Oh, God. I would say my opinion on that sort of fluctuates day by day. I'm really hopeful that Biden wins because I don't think that people have the complacency that they had the last time. Right. And I think that people aren't just going to be like, oh, well, Biden's winning in the polls. Everything will be fine. We did that before. Right. We're not going to make yeah. that mistake again. But I do worry about how the pandemic is going to play out, how voter suppression is going to turn out, how even if we're switching to this vote by mail, that's a massive change for people. And how are we going to make sure that everyone knows how to do it? I keep thinking about the fact that young people probably have never even mailed a letter before in their lives. <laughs> I know. Right? You know like, though, is that young people move a lot and so their addresses change a lot. And right. it's difficult for them to get the ballot sometimes. And I'm definitely worried about the fact that if there aren't enough in-person polling places still, I actually really do worry about Democratic turnout, even though we're the ones who are fighting for all-mail elections. It's not like a simple, okay, everyone now votes by mail and everything's fine. So I think that that has to be a big focus. And I certainly think that Trump has made it pretty clear that he's not going down easy, even if that means cheating somehow. And I have a hard time visualizing him peacefully stepping down. I hate to even say that, but I don't know what the fuck that's going to look like. Well, he keeps planting the seeds. I mean, he's trying to defund the post office. If people don't think that's about mail-in ballots. But it also feels to me like we need to be having these conversations in a more aggressive way right now. Like free postage. Like who's going to pick up the ballots if they're not mailed? All the ballots have to count. And just to raise awareness. Right. And that every state is so different. So what do we do? Do we adopt states and try to get the word out as influencers? Like it just feels so insurmountable. And that's exactly what he wants. It absolutely is. And what I will say is the most manageable way to think about things like let's just say you're an activist in a very blue part of the country, which is probably fairly likely for a lot of your listeners. The most manageable thing to think about is like, OK, we have to flip these Senate races too. Because even if we get Joe Biden, if we have a Democratic president, if we don't flip the Senate, we're still not going to be able to do anything. So we have to flip the Senate. And the Senate seats that are in play are also swing states that we need to win in order to win the presidency. So if you're working on a Senate campaign, then you're also inherently working on the presidential there because any kind of organizing effort at the state level is going to impact the top of the ballot. Basically, if you start at the bottom of the ballot, it will help the top. But if you help the top of the ticket, it doesn't necessarily help people down ballot. So let's just say you pick North Carolina, for example, because there's mm -hmm. an important Senate race there and a whole bunch of districts that are in play, congressional districts, because it's been redistricted. And then you pick a congressional district or two. And that's where you get involved, because that allows you to give a very tangible region that you can focus on or campaign. And I do wish that there were more ways that this can be organized or platforms to organize it. I think Indivisible has some good tools. I think Swing Left has some good tools. They all need to get on the same page. I just feel like sometimes they function so fragmented and it can get confusing. I mean, look what we're dealing with just with pandemic information, right? Because federal, state, county, mayors, it's just all so fragmented. 
that's how our republic is set up which is like different levels of power that do very different tasks. Like your city government needs to be very different from what you're doing federally. But a lot of people forget how much power is concentrated in local governments. And I think because of that, the Black Lives Matters protests, the things that need to be changed for racial justice in police departments overwhelmingly need to happen at the local level. And I don't know that people fully understand that. You know, I think that we see Donald Trump as such a terrible character and as someone who so embodies everything that is awful. So it makes you think about the federal level, it gets the most attention, but your mayor is the one who is going to have the most impact on who your police chief is and whether they have to do any reforms. I really just have one more question for you. What's next? The PAC that I started, Her Time, we do have a number of candidates that we're supporting moving into November. And I'm really going to be looking at those races to see which ones we can have the biggest impact on, whether it is micro-targeting young voters, especially, for example, who Mm -hmm. might need more information on how to vote by mail, things like that. That's where we can plug in on the digital side and make an impact, especially when it comes to voter outreach, because voter education isn't working for a candidate, which means our PAC can spend more money on it than it could just with a traditional PAC donation, right? That's going to take me through November. After November, I think that that's really where I want to focus on the feminist agenda. And November is really going to be the point at which we know what we can and need to focus on next, right? If we have a all democratically controlled government, if we have the House, the Senate and the White House, to me, that means there needs to be some immediate mobilization on what is the first thing that has to get passed while we have that control. What are the things that we will not let our newly elected Democrats in charge not do. Like we insist on these things. And for me, the top of the agenda, even as a feminist issue, is getting big money out of politics and passing this year it was introduced as HR1. And it's a sweeping set of election reforms, including making it possible for everyone to do mail-in ballots, including basically getting rid of gerrymandering, all of that kind of stuff. Because if you don't do that, then my guess is that we lose the house again in the next midterms in 2022 and we have to start everything over. That sounds right. I'm sort of looking at November 3rd as the moment at which I figure out where I can be the most impactful in the next stage. Fortunately, I've decided now for the first time in my life to just take my time with deciding. I wasn't planning on going into politics. I went straight from being an executive director of a homeless services organization into politics. And I was 29 at that point. So this is a pretty early point to have a third career. (laughs) So I'm just going to kind of try and figure that out. Well, it's a testament to how amazing you are. Please call on me if I could be of service, and I will be watching you with so much love and pride. Katie Hill, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and for everything you do. To the boy who posted my naked pictures online, thank you for showing me that trauma need not live on your bones but can hide on the web and still burn the same. For turning my organs into strands of telephone wire, eyes, catalogs of coffins to move in, mouth, damaged hard drive. I began to think of suicide like the light switch in my teenage depression, close enough to reach if I could just get out of bed. We were texting once. You told me that I looked like a starry night. Your body was painted by Vincent Van Gogh. Please show me a glimpse of your private art show. I said no. You begged for over a year, exhausted under light of my phone screen and under the weight of your raunchy request. I undressed, picked up my paintbrush, and with shaky hands told you, I've never shown something so pure. So you said with allure, I'm sure it will be a masterpiece. 
I sent you still-framed screenshots of my shallow stomach, the pale crescent moons of my breasts, my face sitting fearful in every photograph. Told you to lock them in your personal gallery, plant them like seeds in your bone-dry garden so as they could not grow higher than I could see them, but somehow the seeds sprouted all over town. Teenage boys would bend down, cut my flowers with sharp scissors, and keep them in their jean pockets. That morning, I grew glass menagerie limbs and smashed them on every sharp surface so as to make myself disintegrate. But my fragile 15-year-old flesh will forever flourish on Firefox or Google Chrome, sprouting like weeds for my non-consented clitoris.com, my pixelated pink parts forever stretching into sensual screensavers for oversexed teenage boys who sold my body like a trading card you can't buy back. Every time I think of what was done to Katie, my blood boils. She's smart. She's so smart and energetic and full of patriotism and talent, and she is ready to change the world. And instead of that, as men love to do, they used a woman's sexuality against her to try and end her career. It may have ended her first time in Congress, but it did not end her, and I am so glad But it is still true that she is the only person to have suffered consequences of these actions so far. And she is the victim. What the fuck? This non-consensual pornography is a sex crime. Let me say that again. Sharing nude or sexual photos of women without their consent is a sex crime. Maybe not exactly legally yet. But morally, spiritually, politically, and by the way, viewing these photos, seeking them out, you are participating in it. If you sought out the keyhole video of Erin Andrews, if you Googled the naked photos from the iCloud leaks, if you have ever even once shown naked photos of your partner or former partner without their consent, you've participated in a sex crime. Shame on you. Congress needs to enact federal legislation now that would make sure that criminal punishments for violating women in this way have real teeth. I want these men who release these photos in jail, bankrupted, and registered as sex criminals for the rest of their lives. Yep, that's what I want. Because women should never again experience what Katie has experienced. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.